This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by digital media. Here's my friend Lauren Good from The Verge. Thanks, Peter. Today's sponsor is Sortable. Ads suck and monetizing your website is hard work. Sortable uses technology and machine learning to make intelligent decisions about which ad networks will perform best for each user on your site. So stop worrying about your ads and focus on creating great content. Go to sortable.com slash recode. Thanks. That was Lauren Good from The Verge. She's got a great show on this very network called Too Embarrassed to Ask. Today's show is also brought to you by Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon makes comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks. I am wearing the socks right now. Frank Rich can, can testify to that. He has seen the socks. Absolutely. I've got a gray and pink number. What do you think, Frank? Terrific. They very Monday morning. Very Monday morning. Very Monday morning for Peter Kafka. You guys did not think Peter Kafka wore gray socks with pink polka dots, but here I am. Um, not only do they look good, they feel great. They are excellent socks to podcast with Frank Rich with. They are made from naturally antimicrobial fiber, so you will smell good while you wear them. They are easy to buy. You go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your first order with the promo code RECODE. That lets people at MacWeldon know that you bought them because you heard me and Frank Rich talking about them. Um, If for some reason you do not like this product, I cannot believe that will be the case, but it is great to live in 2016 because Mac Weldon will allow you to keep your product free. No questions asked. You hang on to the product. They send you back your money. 20% off. That's good for you. It's good for me. Go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. MacWeldon.com. Promo code RECODE. Frank Rich. Welcome to uh, Peter Kafka Sells Socks and Other Products. <laughs> Thank you for having me. You did not predict your Monday was going to start off this way. Uh, I sort of like it. My father had a retail shoe store, so I sort of feel back in a kind of nostalgic swim about uh, you've, shoes you've seen and people, socks. You've, you've seen people <laughs> hawking products before. I have. We're here to talk about a, uh, one of your products. Uh, you work on Veep. Yes. One of my favorite shows. It's on HBO. When you hear this on Thursday, you'll be able to wait a couple days and watch it on Sunday. Season five, great political satire. Thank we'll you. talk about that. And then that's my awkward transition to the actual not satirical political landscape we're <laughs> looking at right now. We're taping this on Monday, the day before the New York primary. So we're not going to bother sort of predicting the exact delegate count. Right. Safe to say most pundits, including yourself, think that Trump and Hillary win by a significant margin. Yes, I think so. I think people will be looking. I think Trump is considered likely to win in a romp, at least at this point. I think people will look at how big Hillary Clinton's margin is. Needless to say, if either of them should lose, really unlikely in Trump's case, I guess a tiny possibility in Hillary's, it would, as they say, reset the race. So let's assume the race has not been reset. Let's assume you're listening to this and everyone has performed more or less less to, to expectations. We're near the end of April. The convention's coming up in the summer. What happens between now and then? What does the narrative look like? You're, you're, you should set this up. You're, you are a great writer. You're a great critic. You were a theater critic. You were a cultural critic. Now, now at the New York Times, now you're doing both things sort of together at New York Magazine. Um, so you're really good at sort of explaining how the press and the media and politics all work together. So how do you imagine this narrative plays out for the next couple of months? Well, I think there are two different narratives. First, let's start with the Democrats. On the assumption that Bernie Sanders really mathematically cannot get the nomination, I think we're going to see a big dance involving the Democratic Party and the base where Hillary Clinton needs Bernie Sanders voters in November. She needs them badly. She needs a turnout. She needs a lot of those young voters who turned out for Barack Obama and have turned out for Bernie Sanders. She can't win without them. Every poll says she wins. She beats Trump in a landslide. Trump has more negatives than or even Cruz, right? They're detested by the American electorate. So doesn't she win just by not being them? 
That's the thesis. Of course, every thesis this election cycle has proven wrong, so I don't think we can take it to the bank. Look, so she, all, needs, she needs those voters. I think she needs turnout. I think she does need turnout. I think that no, we have a lot of uncharted territory. I'm talking here if, if Trump is the nominee. Cruz, I think that the Democrats would rather run against Cruz. He's less of a wild card. He is a conventional, quite conservative, far right-wing Republican who's not going to appeal to many independents and certainly not to any Democrats. But with Trump, he's proven, you know, he could lose in a landslide, as everyone's saying now. But as also people point out, her negatives are also very high, not as high as Trump's, but quite high for someone who would be the standard bearer of the Democratic Party. And she cannot have, as they say, an enthusiasm gap. So I think a lot of the drama that's coming up between now and the convention, through the convention, is how she and Bernie Sanders make peace with each other that allows him to feel satisfied and feel that he's being heard and represented properly and that helps transfer the support of his many voters to her. And we've, we'll talk a bit about it too, but everyone's well aware that Trump's presence in the, in the race has been a big boon for the media, more ratings, more interest. Does the media have a similar interest in sort of having Bernie Sanders being around to sort of uh, poke and prod at, at Hillary? At some point, do they want him to sort of move off stage so they can move on with the coronation? I think the press always is – its ideological bias is towards drama, always. And so you always want a horse race. And so that's – we've seen that throughout. We've seen you know Marco Rubio portrayed for months as a serious contender to take it away from Trump even though – he was performing poorly in the primaries and in polls. Uh, and so, sure. Everyone, right, the press's bias is towards conflict and the story going a little bit longer and having more to say. Right. Someone wrapping it up, whoever it is, is a bore. You know, no one no – one, that's not interesting. What's interesting is a, is a fight to the finish. So is this something where the press then says – or the media broadly says, oh, well, th- there's this minor discontent. We're going to inflate it. I mean, how do you – if you're running a TV network, if you're running an online network – Sort of how do you approach this if you want to sort of maximize drama? Well, I would say particularly in, in, in a hot media like uh, TV, this, this doesn't apply really to sort of print online really. Uh, but in television and I guess to some extent in, in some online media that travels very quickly, um, has a highly uh, fast metabolism, you do what you see on any cable network any any day. Bernie Sanders is is speaking in whatever, and will he go after Hillary? Will he endorse her? I'm looking months ahead now or weeks ahead. Will uh, Hillary embrace, you know, you can ask a million questions and tune in after this break. There's been a lot of sort of autopsy of what the press missed about Trump starting really almost a year ago. A lot less finger wagging and finger pointing about missing Bernie Sanders and his appeal there. What do you think the fact that, that he wasn't really on anyone's radar until really relatively recently as a serious contender, what does that say about politics and, and media and the way we cover those things? I think you bring in a certain level of expectations and, and prejudices. As somebody who did not miss Trump but certainly did not take Bernie Sanders seriously as a contender early on, I think I, I look at my prejudices. I felt basically you know, uh, a guy in his 70s from a very small state – with no real national following. Socialist. Socialist, and speaking as a Jew, Jewish, I felt, what? This guy stands no chance. And I simply, um, I didn't see it coming. Uh, and in that way, I'm typical, I think. Of, I mean, maybe other people brought other frames of reference to it than I did, but I just didn't see a guy in his 70s challenging her. 
And what do you think, is there pattern recognition now, sort of next time out when you see someone coming from the far left or far right to challenge the presumptive nominee? Do you think the press will react in a different way and say, oh, maybe this could be another Bernie, this could be another Trump? Or do you go, no, no, they just sort of revert back to the mean? No, I think people will overreact. You know, everyone always wants to fight the last war. So someone, let's say, who has no chance in either party emerges from the heart of the base or from a fringe even will probably be given too much credit at the beginning of the next election cycle and then it'll revert to form. You mentioned you were early on Trump. You sort of realized this is the, he's going to be around. The political establishment should take him seriously. He has staying power. He's, I think you also said he will never be president. He's unelectable. Do you still feel confident about that? No. I always <laughs> I, I've re-examined, I'm starting to re-examine that. I always felt he had a real chance at the nomination, and I still feel that today he's likely to get it. I guess what I've learned from mistakes everyone has made at different times, including me, over over the past year or so, is we can't predict anything. And, and there is a way he could be elected president, even though all the polls now are telling us he couldn't. And since the polls themselves and analyses of the polls by sites that analyze polls have all been wrong much of this uh, season... Uh, I feel it's, it's all kind of worthless speculation. You had a great story last fall, early on, in, in, in Trump's ascent, and you said he's good for America. It's a, good for democracy, an intentionally sort of provocative headline, as a good headline right. should be. Yeah. And the premise was he's sort of unmasking politics for the sham they are and, and sort of burning it down to the ground, and you compared him to 20 different great fictional, uh, fictional characters. Do you think that sort of he's going to remake American politics or do you think he's just – people are going to sort of crib from Trump next time out and sort of do the same – It's structurally it's the same thing. They've just sort of added a little Trump flavor to the campaign. I think that candidates themselves can't crib from Trump because he is an entertainer and he's sui generis and there's – most politicians don't even watch you know, entertainment. They don't even know what it is. Do you think you see more entertainers getting in? Do you think you see an Alec Baldwin or someone like that on the left or maybe there's a character like that on the right? There'll always be someone, as there, there have been in the past, but I don't think that'll be necessarily a factor. So you can't uh, replicate that. You can't replicate that. What you can replicate is you can say, wait a minute, I maybe I don't have to censor every word and have every line that I speak on a podium through you know four spin meisters and five speech writers and focus groups. Maybe the time has come to have a campaign that actually is authentic as opposed to faking authenticity. And maybe I don't need these high-priced consultants. Maybe I don't need Frank Luntz with people in buzzers. I mean, you say that, but, you know, we, we've watched Hillary Clinton get in trouble for saying really fairly mild stuff. She had an ill-considered CPT joke with Bill de Blasio that was scripted. She said something terribly wrong about Nancy Reagan and AIDS. Um, I don't really? think that was intentional. Uh, she gets pilloried for that, right? Every time she steps outside of, of the box that she's supposed to be in, she gets attacked for that, and this is in the Trump era. Shouldn't she be rewarded for that, or people shouldn't shouldn't people cut her more slack for that? Yes and no. My feeling is, if she were consistently uninhibited like Trump, she could get away with these gaffes. I mean, there's some. I have to say, the aides Nancy Reagan being a quiet, you know, spokesman for aides is baffling to me. That's more than a misspeak. That's like not knowing basic information. I don't know what would possess her. But again, that doesn't hinder Trump at all. No, it doesn't, precisely because Hillary Clinton has established a persona of always sort of in control. Competence. And, competence and so on. It breaks her personality that she's established. What if she had been from the beginning in this campaign freer and more un uninhibited and rollicking than she'd never been before? 
stuff like that might have rolled off. Her saying what cold towns should be shut down. I mean, there's some incredible things that have come out of it. But because she's so tightly controlled, you create a persona, sad as that may be, that's the way American politics works. So you predict coming elections where people say, all right, we, we can loosen things up. It seems wildly optimistic, frankly. It seems like the people who are in politics who've been successful to date are the most buttoned down, and they've been trained that way for, for really generations. I agree, and I think most probably won't, but some will. And it's interesting, by the way, to watch Barack Obama in his lame duck iteration. He's become much more uninhibited. And this predates Trump, but yeah, he's definitely in sort of a high school senior, right? Yeah, he's high school senior. He's also saying more directly what he believes. He's calling people out, and he's being witty a lot, and everyone knows he was in private, not so much in public. And his popularity is going up. You know, he is rising in the polls as his administration is waning. Do you think he wishes he had the proceeding six, seven years back and had had tried being sort of his more authentic self? Or, or I mean, it strikes me that he's also very naturally a conservative, small C person. I think you're right. I think I, I have no idea what's in his mind. And I think that uh, the, the historical verdict on his uh, presidency may be a lot higher than it is now, and that things he accomplished, like the Affordable Care Act, are going to loom larger in history. And so he may say to himself, I know over time I handled this right, and now I'm allowed senioritis. Well, I, want to, I want to come back to Obama down the road, but let's go back to the way that the campaign's being run now, and the way the media is covering it, and the way it might work in the future. If in the future you see more people sort of cribbing from Trump and trying to be more authentic and, and, and allowing themselves to have gaffes, what's the media's role? Does the media's role change? Right now, the media gets a lot of criticism for just sort of letting Trump say whatever he wants and giving him an open mic and giving him pretty much unlimited airtime. Do they then extend that to everyone down the road? No, it's all about news. The fact is that, you know, Marco Rubio was not making freewheeling speeches where he said things that were different. He did once, right? He he did once. And that, by the way, his attempt to imitate Trump's sort of Don Rickles humor. Right, he had the hand joke. Yeah, fell flat. And it just goes to show you can't be what you're not. And that's why not everyone will try to be Trump, or if they do, it'd be a big big mistake. But I think that Trump has gotten the media coverage he's gotten precisely because he makes himself available to the press constantly, where uh, other candidates, including some of his competitors would have, uh, including Hillary Clinton, would have very narrow press availabilities. Literally roping the press off. Roping them off. Trump does some of that too, but basically he's constantly on the phone with reporters, including at places like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal where they've attacked him or the editorial pages have attacked him. So he's made himself very available and his speeches do have drama and I feel at the same time the press has done a good job of uh, vetting the ridiculous facts at Trump's sites or alleged facts and, and also investigating his business enterprises. His followers don't, however, seem to care, and they may not read or consume the media where this vetting is going on. You believe broadly the press has done a good job covering this election? Except when it's been in predictive mode. I feel that, yes, once it's been slow to catch up to the reality of Trump, that was a major failure. I mean, most pundits, a lot of reporters, a lot of editors and poll analysts really failed to take Trump serious as, I don't mean as as a serious man, but as a serious presidential possibility. Right. The and, narrative was this is a summer fling, or it's a summer fling that's lasted into fall. It's going to go away. All right. Once the real primaries and caucuses show up, then he'll go away. Right. And this is also true, by the way, of conservatives in the media. It's not just liberals. It's, you know, people like 
Charles Krauthammer and Michael Gerson of the Washington Post and David Brooks of the New York Times, Ross Douthat of the Times, all thought he was dead. Uh, National Review thought he was dead. And so that's been a big failure. But once they did realize he was serious, the vetting of Trump University, of his real estate deals, of his finances, has been good. It, it may not, if, it, if it hasn't swayed Trump supporters from him, that's not the media's fault. One last Trump and media question. He's excellent on TV. He's excellent on Twitter as well, at least in his right. Trumpian way, right? He does that Don Rickles thing on Twitter now. Yeah. Twitter's a great insult for him. Do you think you'll see other candidates trying to replicate what he's done on Twitter and using it as an actual sort of attacks in ways lots of people use Twitter, right, to mouth off? Or do you think that people go back to keeping that as a constrained on message? We can control what, what happens on Twitter. I don't know. Twitter is a... Uh a loaded weapon in the hand of a politician. Some realize that, some don't. Look what Jeb Bush tried to do with Twitter. You know, he put a handgun, I think it was a handgun, on a photograph on Twitter with the legend America. That was his idea of a tweet. As Donald Trump would say in one of his tweets, sad. Sad. <laughs> Low energy. <laughs> Low energy. Let's talk about Twitter and media and television in one second. We're going to do an advertisement, from again, from Lauren Good. We'll be right back. Thanks, Peter. Sortable isn't your typical ad tech company. They're a company built on data, using technology and machine learning to make intelligent decisions. Their ad engine analyzes millions of ad impressions every day, and they're working with all of the major ad networks, including Google, AppNexus, AOL, OpenX, and Amazon, just to name a few. In real time, they analyze users, geography, device type, session depth, layouts, networks, and bids. Using machine learning, their ad engine understands which ad network is going to pay the most for every impression, and of course, make sure those ad networks fill your ad space. Bottom line is that they're working on some really interesting stuff, and they're helping a growing list of web publishers make more money and stop worrying about their ads. These guys started out as publishers, so they know how much work it takes to make money online. Check them out at sortable.com slash recode. Sortable is making ads suck less at sortable.com slash recode. Today's Recode Media is also brought to you by Oxford Road. Six months ago, it was all about top-line growth. But today, you can't raise if you can't acquire customers and show a path to profitability. That's why the smartest minds in consumer tech are choosing Oxford Road, the fastest-growing ad agency in consumer tech. Their clients acquire tens of thousands of new customers every week through TV, radio, and podcasts. All campaigns are measured and managed using best-in-class attribution methodologies from multiple sources. They also offer free creative message development, scoring, and optimization. As a client, attribution modeling and consulting is included for free, and your own customized analytics dashboard is also free. Oxford Road does not accept most new business opportunities due to product quality, bandwidth limitations, and current client exclusivities. So find out if you qualify for their services right now and get a free needs analysis and demonstration of their analytics platform. Go to OxfordRoad.com scale today before your investors ask why you haven't. That's OxfordRoad.com scale. Back with Frank Rich. Frank, I did a terrible job of introducing you at the beginning of this show. No, uh, what is the best way to describe what you do day to day? Well, I'm a writer at large at New York Magazine and uh, executive producer at Veep and uh, do some other creative consulting work at HBO. What a great life you have. L let me ask about New York Magazine briefly. You were for a long time associated with the New York Times. You had really powerful perch there at, at still, I think, the most important newspaper in at least the U.S., probably the world. Why did you leave? You left in 2011. I have a history of getting bored eventually. I had uh, 
I'd spent a lot of time at the Times. I had been drama critic for about 13 years. I got bored with that and, and left. And then I was a columnist, an op-ed columnist, essentially for 17 years. And it's I, the best real estate, right, if you're in that world? It's the world. best real estate if, if you want to constantly spout opinions and write to a very strict format. I mean, they were very nice to me. They gave me a larger space, which was innovative at the time, than the regular 750 words. But I really was eager to do other writing that was not being on a treadmill from week to week. I was getting involved with television, which I was finding very exciting. And I wanted to get my life back and do the work I wanted to do without... And there wasn't a way to do that at the time? It seems like today, if you went to the Times and said, I want to continue being a star columnist for you, I want to generate content for you, I just don't want to be hemmed into this word count and I want to be able to do TV stuff, it seems like they would make room for you there. It was something that we discussed at the time. They were just conceiving. They hadn't quite figured out, but they were starting to figure out what became the Sunday Review. It was still, when I left, the News of the Week in Review. But it was still at a frequency I didn't really want to do. And also, the other thing about writing for a newspaper and writing opinion for a newspaper, people pick up the op-ed page of a paper and there's an expectation you are going to be dealing with what's happening at that minute. If Trump spoke yesterday, there was an election yesterday, or there, God forbid there was a terrorist incident, I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to step back and... You don't want to be in the cycle. I didn't want to be in the cycle in that way. I wanted to step back and write a much longer piece about, say, Donald Trump, as it would turn out, or and also about cultural things uh, from time to time, which also is abhorred by an op-ed page. When you see someone writing about, I don't know, a movie on an op-ed page, it plays like, oh, they didn't really have a column this week. And, I'm, it, fill, you know, it doesn't play it's, right. It's a monkey on your back, right? You've got to fill that it's many a, yeah. words. But, but you get, at New York Magazine, you guys have done a clever way of, of resolving this, which is you, you talk to one of your colleagues and right. sort of transcribe, or I don't know if you're uh, yeah, typing it or, or It's or just like talking. an email exchange. Yeah. It's this, basically. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, a little more elevated. Not necessarily more elevated, but also on an irregular basis. There's some weeks I don't even do it. I got nothing to say. Nothing yeah, nothing, I, I, yeah, I didn't do it last week. And I know a lot of folks who've been at the Times or at the Times now or, or sort of privately, the discussion is, this is great. I love the work here. I want to do something else. I'm worried that once I leave here, I will no longer be so-and-so at the New York Times, and, and the, my call won't be returned as quickly, or maybe at all. How, how was that transition for you? It was easy, really. First of all, I just never felt that way. You know, I've always felt on my own self. I do know a lot of people feel that way, and it becomes, for me, it, it, to think that way becomes a psychological trap, because then you'll never leave. And every job I've had there, uh, mainly drama critic and op-ed columnist, you can do to the day you die. But, you know, I was turning 60. I wanted to do other things and I felt, I don't want to do the rest of the time. I, you know, so there was never short. a call that, that you were waiting to get returned that would have gone that much faster if it had no. been... No. And, I, and, and by the way, I'm not that kind of uh, writer anyway. I'm not like a beat reporter, but... Yeah, no, never been an issue. What's Now that you're out of the Times, what's your take on sort of how the Times is transitioned in the digital world? It's famously sort of trying to figure out how to catch up to BuzzFeed or operate in a Huffington Post world while still being the New York Times. I'm assuming you're a close reader still. Of course. I have a lot of friends there. I think the Times is really trying to deal with this new world the best they can. It's a lot of experimentation. Obviously, some things work and some don't, and they're learning it, and they do some things very well. It's very hard for them to make the change to try to be sort of hip and, you know, recode. Like, they're not going to easily do it. 
but you know, on, on the other hand, their best investigative reporting, the international reporting, is non pari, and we have to hope they find a way to preserve that, which so far, thank God, they are, uh, because we need it. No one else is going to do it. I mean, other the Washington Post, I should say, is really stepping up now, particularly with the infusion of uh, Marty Barron's uh, brilliant editorship and Jeff Bezos' money. But there aren't many outlets that can do that kind of heavy lifting, and the Times has stayed true to that. The we-need-it argument doesn't really work economically, right? If it turns out that we need it, but actually we don't want to pay for it, we don't want to subscribe to it, advertisers want to be attached to it, it goes away, right? Unless you can find someone like a Jeff Bezos to underwrite it. Right. I mean, the Times' theory and other news organizations' theory was that we'll do a style section, a dining section. Uh, we'll do a certain amount of fluff, if you will, although some of it's interesting fluff. And that will bring in ads and pay for sending a reporter to Afghanistan for a year. That's now under threat. That's the problem. And you pick up the print paper. And it's shocking how you can feel how much less advertising there is. But I think everyone's in this together. I mean, it's not just the Times. Everyone is trying to figure out a way uh, to make it work. Even and, as you may have read, some of the big digital media guys are now trying to figure out what the world looks like because it's not, it's not a straight line. Right. It's not and straight then, to the right. The report that BuzzFeed has denied that it's not returning the financial returns that were expected or projected – Clearly, nothing is a slam dunk, except, I guess, for Facebook. I mean, no, everything works out very well for Facebook. Everything works Google, out Google very well, well for Facebook. Uh, yeah, they're trying to figure it out, right? The new conventional wisdom is go put your stuff out where your readers are, whether that's Facebook. It's probably Facebook, Snapchat, wherever else. Figure out how to make money later. Old people like myself can remember the scenario being spelled out, you know, back in 1999, 2000. We'll figure out the money later. We'll make it up on volume. So it's a little unnerving to be back there again. Yeah, it is. And look, it's very concerning. Also, it's amazing to me, you know, that people, when people tell me, I read this story of yours, or I read this story from a writer at the Times, they never saw it in the actual vehicle you're in. They saw it on Facebook. Right. And so how, uh, that's beyond my... If you're uh, an optimist, you say, look, it's going to figure it out. Facebook actually wants this content to, to work in some capacity. Maybe they don't value it as much as you'd like. Maybe they value it the same as, as a picture of my kid on a six-year-old birthday party. Right. Um, one, one thing that is working is pay television, specifically HBO. You've got a great show on HBO, Veep. You're five years into it. How did that come about? How did you get to Veep? What happened was when I was still at the Times in 2008, which was three years before I left the paper... HBO was undergoing a transition in leadership. The cupboard was sort of bare, and they came to me and I think some other people. People as well. forget this, right? That the yeah, there was host, a, Sex and the City, a, a Sopranos, Sex and the City, Six Feet Under, Entourage. They were all winding down, or had that wound HBO was, was not as hot a network, right? And they had famously passed on Mad Men, for instance, and. There was a change in the leadership of HBO, not for that reason, but just other reasons. And um, two of the guys who were taking it over took me to lunch, and they knew about my theater background and my news background and what I like to uh, be interested in just being a, a voice at the table and figuring out what, what might happen. And, and so, what was the premise for the show then, what was the, as they laid it out for you? Oh, no, this was not about Not theater. even that, just would you like to be around? Just, yeah, like, be around. And, you know, it's a part-time thing and it's I a said, good yeah, part-time yeah, job yeah, yeah exactly so i got i had to the times in those days it's changed now you can't be involved with other media company but they made an exception because they'd already made one for another op-ed columnist who was 
employed by a cable network where he was attacking the New York Times on the air, namely Bill Crystal, who you may recall was a Times op-ed columnist. And so they had to let me do this too. And part of it was I could, you know, develop things, try to find things. And um, so I kept – and one of the things they were really looking for was a smart show about Washington. They'd had one called K Street before I was there that had failed. The Soderbergh show. Soderbergh, yeah. George Clooney show with Carville and Madeline playing themselves yeah. and so on, sort of pseudo-documentary. And, uh, you know, I tried to – and I still am developing a bunch of things. The way Veep came about was that uh, I uh, – saw Armando Iannucci's movie in the loop by happenstance. I went to a screening of it, which if people don't know about it, it's really a hilariously funny comedy about the run-up to the Iraq War. James Gandolfini's in it. Right, and uh, and, and actually Anna Klumsky is in it. Right, and, it's sold from the, it's about the U.S. and Britain, and in the sort of, a, there's a, yeah. You, yes, exactly. It's, 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 and by the way, the word Iraq is never mentioned. In right. It, just as the words Democrat and Republican are never mentioned. And it's in incredibly Greek. profane. Incredibly profane. And then difficult to understand. You kind of need subtitles for it, I think, the, the first viewing or so. Yes, it's very densely written. And Armando Iannucci had a history of doing a, a British satirical series, including one about uh, the British government called The Thick of It. But it was the first time it indicated to me as a, as a you know audience member he had any interest or knowledge of D.C. And a lot of it's set in Foggy Bottom. And there's like a Madeleine Albright character, S character, played by Mimi Kennedy. It's a hilarious movie. In fact, it was nominated for Oscars for screenplay. And so... HBO started talking to him. He was very resistant to working in American TV because he'd had a bad experience several years earlier at ABC, which had tried to make an adaptation of Thick of It. But gradually he came up with this, yeah, which was hard to imagine. Hard to, and was doomed. Uh, and he didn't like the experience either. And, uh, and then he came up with this idea of Veep, which was a very simple idea, which is you have someone who's supposedly the second most powerful person in the world who is right next door to power, but actually has no power. And and we were off and running, and then uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus was cast, and here we are. Armando's retired from the show. It's now run by a, another brilliant American writer, David Mandel. It's been a joy to work on it's it. It's almost like an X-ray, sort of reverse uh, negative, whatever the right metaphor is for the West Wing, right? In which everyone in the West Wing is is good-looking, idealistic, ultra-competent, means well. Even when they they oppose each other ideologically, they all want the country to work for the best. And here, everyone is is some of them are clever, but they're all sort of dumb fundamentally. They're, they're venal. They're venal. It's it's very much the un-Aaron Sorkin of it all. Yeah. Early on, uh, which I love. It's great. I mean, well, I do too. I, I sort of, and it's what I believe. And I grew up in Washington. Forget about my covering Washington. I grew up, and Julie Louis Dreyfus also grew up in D.C. And we knew we had something that expressed our views of the city. When very early on, before we even shot the pilot, Armando wrote a uh, memo, really, for the production designers, and it was just, no, it does not look glamorous. It's government issue furniture. The desks don't match the chairs. There's detritus everywhere. People dress tight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People dress ten years behind New York, except for Dan Egan, the hip character. He he's three years ahead of them, so he's seven years behind New York in his wardrobe. And there's crap everywhere on the set. And there was a, a gag that was in the pilot that was cut, but to me sort of sums up the show, which is that two characters have this huge fight about who is going to get the power outlet 
to recharge their BlackBerry. And so the, the fight for power for people who have no power but are in that government gets down to fighting for a, a power outlet. And you would assume if you didn't watch the show that you guys would have a lot of commentary this year about Trump or there'd be a Trump-like character or you'd reference him by name. But you don't do any of that. This exists in some alternate universe. It's an alternate universe. It is sort of the present. We never identify anyone's political party. We never use the words Democrat, Republican. We've never referred to a politician later than Johnson and Nixon, uh, a real-life politician. We, we sort of assume Julie Dreyfus is, is on the Democrat left side, she's given sort the, of a, um, the policy she's endorsing or not endorsing. Yeah, she's sort of, she's sort of a – she could be a moderate Democrat – or to the extent there still are Susan Collins, Republic, right. moderate Republicans, she could she could be that. But your point here is that there is no ideology. The ideology is power and, and, and getting and it's and just keeping. power and greed for power and and you know in terms of current events, what we've found to our amazement, and we find it again this season because we know it's in the can already. Things that have happened on the show happen in real life after we did them. You know, there's all, we had a whole incident several seasons ago with Selenar our heroine having an email issue. We had a Washington Post reporter being held hostage in Iran, which right. happened in real life. And last year, we ended the season, which is where we pick up uh, this Sunday, with an electoral tie. And without spoiling anything or divulging anything, I think we've anticipated some of the unexpected twists and turns, but not literally, that are going to happen. You uh, described Julie Louis-Dreyfus as, as the heroine, she's just the lead, and, and I, you right, kind of a despicable character. Right, but but yes. this, this is the thing that I think is, is, at least for me, super interesting about this show, more than really anything else on TV, maybe Game of Thrones, right? Everyone's unlikable. Everyone is, is deeply flawed. Um, and even if you root for them at all, you know they're going to get crushed in the next scene or the next episode. Is there ever any feedback from HBO or anybody else saying that you can't be this ill-tempered and dark? We need a, a sunnier view of the world. The great thing about working at HBO is you never, ever in a million years would get that kind of note. We get very few notes. That the reason why the network works when, when things – not everything succeeds, but the things that, that make people want to work there is that – they don't interfere in that way at all about content. I mean, we have to, uh, you know, clear names so people can't sue us when we create fictional names. We have to maybe buy the right to a popular song. But otherwise, it's never about that. It's If there are minimal notes from HBO, it's uh, about story. Does this follow? Does this track that? It's nothing about the uh, political content or the moral content. And they assume the viewers can follow along. It's it, you do you do have to sort of watch carefully if you're going to get most of the dialogue here. You do, and some people, you know, that's just the way it's written. It's very, very densely uh, verbal, and some people don't like it. Some people like it enough to watch an episode more than once. And uh, HBO's done that with you know other shows too. Indeed, Dave Mandel, our current showrunner, comes out of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Also, a very, very dense verbal show. I, I could talk to you about Veep. All day long. I love it. But uh, before we go, I want to ask you about one bit of theater. Like you said, you were drama critic of the Times. One of the biggest stories of last year is Hamilton. Yes. Now, what does its success tell you? Or again, is it is it so separate from the rest of the world and the theater world and cultural that, that it's got nothing to do with anything and it's, it's a one-off and, and we don't even need to sort of explain what it means? It just is. It is a phenomenon like you know, that happens every, at most, 10 or 15 years in the theater. And and when I talk to friends of mine in the theater, you know, people look for antecedents, maybe hair, you know, in the late 60s, maybe a chorus line in the mid-70s. I don't, you know, maybe cats for those who like cats. I do think the theater 
in general is much better shaped than it was when I was a drama critic. It was at its nadir. Production was down. There were dark theaters on Broadway, off-Broadway companies folding. Now it's really booming. Hamilton, first of all, is a brilliant show. Secondly, it speaks to the entire country in a, in a, in a fresh way about its history and about its ideals. It's hugely entertaining and has a cast album that, that you know is mesmerizing like watching it in the theater. Any phenomenon like that is a one-off, but the fact is there's just a, a lot of good theater right now. There's a play that opened a few months ago called uh, The Humans that is one of the best plays I've seen in the past two or three years. I mean, uh, one of the interesting, and everyone's remarked on it, ironies about, about Hamilton, is about diversity and multiculturalism and, and the idea is it's bringing theater to a, a bigger audience than normally gets to see it. It's impossible to get a ticket. It's no, literally impossible to get a it's ticket. Im- it's impossible, and there was a really interesting uh, story in the Times Magazine with one of the producers, how do you manage this kind of success without pissing off your base, you know, with ba- basically not annoying people to death that they can't get in. And the prices are absurd, some of them on the black market, which you can't blame the management of the show for. That said, it's going to change. They're opening what will be, I suspect, superb duplicate Right, they're going to take it on the road. Yeah, they're going to they're going to do standalone. They're going to have companies that are going to sit down in Chicago and San Francisco. Other companies are going to tour. So my guess it'll be like happened with the Book of Mormon, the last huge hit, not as big a hit as Hamilton, but still enormous hit. It will find its way. There will be offers for younger people or people who don't have you know three hundred dollars to be able to see it. And people have to probably have to be a little patient for that. Let's make this news you can use. You're coming to New York. You want to see Hamilton. You're, there's no way you're going to see Hamilton. Humans is probably a tough ticket, too. What, what's Not necessarily. The, no, you can, you can go see humans? My, my feeling is that there are people who really want to get it. Hamilton aside, if you want to get into these shows and you do any kind of planning, you can do it. And the truth is, you know, the humans is a straight play. It's a family drama uh, by an, a young writer named Stephen Karam. And... It doesn't have stars in it. It's a brilliant ensemble cast. It'll probably win the Tony. But you'll be able to get either a Rush ticket or a KTS ticket or maybe a full-price ticket, but it won't be a fortune because it's not a It will not musical. cost you thousands of dollars. Yeah, to exactly. exactly. Right. And, you know, a lot of the serious drama does not sell out unless there's a movie star in it. All right. Frank Rich says, go see humans. Yes. All right. There we have it. Frank, thank you so much for your time, your patience, your recommendations. Thank you guys for listening. There's plenty more of these. You can go find them all on iTunes over at Recode there. Subscribe. That's good for us. You can leave us a review. That'd be good too. Five (laughs) stars if you got it. Um, It's all free because, again, we'll figure out how to monetize it later. Kara Swisher (laughs) has a show called Recode Decode. You can listen to that. Lauren Good, who you've heard, has a show called Too Embarrassed to Ask. Recode Replay has all our very expensive conference content there. Also free for you. Super easy to get. All available on iTunes. I'm going to thank MacWeldon.com, Oxford Road, and Sortable, all of whom helped bring you all this awesome free content. And also Digital Media, which distributes this stuff and sells the ads. They're very important. Thanks, guys. This is Recode Media. I'll be back next week with another awesome guest.